Well, amen. We are in week four of our Back to the Basics series. And if you would like to follow along and take notes, you can go on our app or our website. You can find our app through there as well. But go on our app and you're going to find uh, media, sermon notes, and then you'll find today's date. So if you'd like to follow along, we invite you to do so. Uh, again, week four of our four-week series, Back to the Basics. Uh, obviously, we could cover a lot more even in the basics. And so we wanted to kind of just take a snapshot of some core essentials to the Christian faith. And so we pray that this has been a blessing to you, an encouragement to you, a challenge to you. If you missed any of the weeks that we talked through these basics, we encourage you to go back online. You can watch those back and you can kind of, uh, kind of fill in what you missed and go from there. But we want to kind of wrap up the service or the series this morning in our service with kind of answering really kind of what does it look like to practically live for Christ? Kind of just a summary of that. And then I want to take some time, and I mentioned this when we started the series, I want to answer two questions or basically kind of speak to two areas of the Christian life that it seems like I hear a lot from either new believers or maybe people that know Christ for a while but have never been really discipled. And so I want to kind of speak to two areas this morning that I hope would be a practical encouragement to you uh, in areas that I feel a lot of new believers or maybe you've been saved for a while but not really been in church. And so maybe you don't really have some experience with these things. And so I want to kind of speak to that as well here in a little bit. I have to say, though, um, no longer being a slave to fear is a tremendous blessing in Christ. Amen. And I can't help but comment on that song we just sang. And I, I want to share with you as a word of encouragement, and it is an encouragement, the greatest way that fear manifests itself in our life as followers of Christ is when we worry and believe God can't take care of something. And so I meet so many Christians that say, no, I'm not living in fear, brother, but you're really worried about something you can't control. And you're letting that worry consume you. You are living in fear. And it doesn't mean that God's going to do everything exactly the way we want him to do it. Because he is God and we are not. But we don't fear tomorrow. By the way, it doesn't matter who wins what election. We don't live in fear. It doesn't matter what laws are passed or not passed. We don't live in fear. And because we have a God who is over everything and is working a plan and a purpose for his glory and our blessing. Now that may mean that we go through a season of struggle. We go through it. And so we don't say, oh, I don't fear because God's going to make everything easy. God's going to make everything comfortable. God's going to make everything rosy. That is not what we're saying. We're saying we don't fear because even in the pit of the prison, he's still God. And Acts, Paul talks about this in Acts 16, where him and Silas are sitting in that prison at midnight, singing praises to God after being beaten for the faith. How is it? They weren't fearful of those guards. They weren't fearful of another beating. Did they enjoy that? No. They don't, like, this is great. Let's get another beating. This is awesome. So why were they not fearful of those things? Not in themselves, but in Christ. And as we talk about being back to the basics and the core essentials of the Christian faith, we have to acknowledge that believers from day one have had to desperately hold on to and lean into the power of God in their lives, the presence of Christ in their lives through prayer and in the word. And we need him moment by moment. Every hour, Lord, I need thee. We never go a moment without a desperate need for Christ. And so that's why we don't fear. Because no matter what the world brings against us, whatever politician does or says whatever, God is over all of it. And so I want to kind of encourage us this morning. If you sing the song, I am no longer a slave to fear, but you're putting yourself as a slave to worry, you are living in fear. And so a pastor said at one time, a pastor that I listen to every now and then, and, and he said it best. He said, when we worry and show fear about things, that's the area we're not trusting God in. So whatever area you find yourself worrying about, that's an area in your life practically where you're not trusting God in that area. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be a financial thing, a health thing. And I understand these are all things we all battle with, and I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not trying to make light of it, but I just want to let you know, through Christ, we can surrender to him. And then trust in him and his will and live in peace that he gives us through the Holy Spirit. So that's not even in the message, but I just have to acknowledge that this morning because I believe it's something that we all battle with. This morning, however, now that you've gotten your mini-sermon in the sermon, so now we're kind of through that. And I know you all, as it's Appreciation Sunday, you all appreciate the mini-sermons in the sermons. I know you don't have to email me or tell me. I know. Oh, come on. No, you're fine. Stop. Stop. Cut it out. Cut it out. Okay. Okay. 
No, you guys are good. But I want to dive into some of the kind of things that we've affirmed over this series so far. So we have affirmed in the very beginning that our foundation is built upon Christ as our Savior. That's the foundation that we're building upon. Jesus Christ is the only way unto salvation. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh, the mediator that comes between God and man, providing a way of salvation. It's only in Christ. And Jesus Christ is a part of the Trinity of God, which is the Father, Son, and Spirit. All equally God, but all unique in their personhood. They're all God, but all unique in the Trinity. And it's not like an egg, or it's not like whatever other thing you've tried to illustrate it. I know I've tried to do that as well. It's something our minds will always wrestle with understanding, but Scripture declares it as true, so we accept Scripture in this, even when we can't wrap our minds around the reality of the Trinity. Also, we see that all of this is revealed in his word. So one of the key foundation essentials of the Christian church is the word of God is the word of God. And you might think that's pretty obvious, but I've had conversations with people, you've had conversations with people that want to talk about a knowledge of God, but don't acknowledge the reality of God's word. As though somehow we can have any knowledge of God apart from what's revealed in creation, which is that there is a God. But any knowledge of Jesus Christ being the Savior that we need to repent of our sins, it's revealed in this word. And I've met people, you've met people that are like, oh, I don't believe the word of God. I just have a relationship with God that him and I understand. But they're denying the very foundation at which provides that relationship and the knowledge of salvation. Also, our lives in Christ, we affirm this early on. Our lives in Christ are strengthened through time in his word, time in prayer, and committed church involvement. It's not a pick and choose. We need all of it in our lives to be healthy followers of Christ. How much time in his word, how much time in in prayer, how much church involvement, that's between you and the Lord to work out. There's no equation, I spend X time in the word, X time in prayer, and that equals to X time in church involvement. It can't be that kind of equation because that's legalism. It has to be you saying, Lord, I'm surrendered to you and I want to spend time with you, so lead me in what that looks like. If I can give you a a kind of an idea, if you're starting off, you've never done a devotional life before, you don't really know where to start, I always recommend five times or five minutes in time of prayer and kind of getting our hearts and minds ready, five minutes in the word, and then five minutes in prayer. If you need some kind of a starting point, that might be a good starting point. But the key is not how long we spend with him, it's spending time with him. So we affirmed also that as believers in Christ, we are commanded, we are commanded to be baptized as well as take part in communion. We're commanded as followers of Christ to be baptized, water baptism, and we are commanded to continually take part in communion with the local church, which demonstrates our faith in Christ. We affirm that all believers are both being discipled and discipling in an ongoing fellowship in the church. This fellowship is vital to our growing in Christ as well as helping others to grow in Christ. Now, these are just some of the core essentials that we've covered, some of the core things we've talked about in the Christian faith and revolving around our Christian lives. But I believe these give us a starting point that will lead us to discovering there are other essentials in the word that we can come to understand, but we develop those as we walk with Christ, the knowledge of those things. But we also realize not only are there essentials of the Christian faith, there are also some non-essentials of the Christian faith that we've all maybe experienced or been a part of. Church traditions that are not bad, they're good things, they're fine, nothing wrong with them, but they're not essentials to the Christian faith. They're not, they're not gospel. They're preferential, they're maybe denominationally based, There's nothing wrong with them. Um, How you take offering, for example. Some churches pass a plate like we do. Some churches have a box in the back. Some churches have a box up front, and they take a time where everybody comes up and puts their offering in. Some churches don't pass plates at all, and they do it completely online or at a kiosk. None of that is described as essential in the Bible. What is essential is that we give. That's the essential, that we collect and we store up for the purpose of God's ministry. How we collect that is not an essential, it's a non-essential. That's a really easy way to explain kind of how those things exist in the church. Now this morning I want to start actually with a passage that I believe really in a a very good way summarizes what it means to practically walk in Christ. So go with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. 
If you're using one of the Bibles provided, there are Bibles there in the seats around you. If you need to use one of those or would like to use one of those, you're invited to do so. You can just turn to page 795. So if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can turn to page 795. Romans chapter 8, and we're actually going to start in verse 1. So as I was studying this week and thinking about where we could go for a, a summary passage that kind of speaks to some of the amazing benefits and blessings and privileges that come as a follower of Christ, some of the realities that we experience in our life, some of the challenges and encouragements and commands. Romans 8 came to mind. Now, Romans 8 is an amazing chapter. There's so much in here. Obviously, the end of the chapter speaks to that love of Christ, which we cannot be separated from. Um, What a blessing to know that nothing I do or don't do separates me from the love of Christ because the love of Christ is kept in Christ, not in me. Um, And again, this love of Christ in the end of Romans 8 is not the same love that's spoken of in John 3.16. So John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That is kind of how I look at it as that's the general love of God. That's just the love of God for his creation. He loves his creation so much that he sent his Son that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. That is an act of love that God the Father did that. It's an act of love that Jesus Christ says, not only does the Father love you, but I love you enough to come and do this. That's kind of the general love of God, just a a love for his creation. In Romans 8, we see a specific love in Christ. And that's specifically for those who are saved in Christ. So there's the general love of God, which is for all of creation, that anyone could be saved. They would call upon the name of the Lord because Jesus Christ died publicly. He died openly so that anyone can call on the name of Christ and be saved as God works in their heart to draw them to that conclusion. However, in Romans 8, we find that we don't just have a general love from God. We have a father-to-son, father-to-daughter love with God in Christ. So it's a deeper love. It's a more intimate love. It's a connection with the Father through Christ. But in Romans 8, I want to start in reading in verse 1 through verse 17 and talk about some of these things. And again, this is just kind of a summary passage as to the benefits and blessings to be in Christ and how we walk with Christ. So Romans 8, 1. This is also following Romans 7 where Paul says, I don't do what I want to do and I do that I don't want to do. And why do I do the things I don't want to do? Because there's sin in me. And so he's admitting that he struggles, as we all do in life, that there's this back and forth, this war in the spirit. You've all experienced this as a follower of Christ. You know God would have you to do this, but for whatever reason, you chose to do this over here. And the minute you chose that, God convicted you by his spirit to say, you know that wasn't what you should have done. And Paul's saying, why do I do that? And I don't know if you can raise your hand. I can raise my hand and say, I've been in moments where I'm like, Lord, why? Like, I know, I don't even want to do that. I don't even desire to do that. And all of a sudden, I'm denying you and doing this. Or, and it can be little things. It can be big things. And so right after Paul has this kind of open, vulnerable, transparent moments about the reality of the war in the flesh and the spirit, he goes to Romans 8. And I love this because even when we battle against those things, it doesn't change our position in Christ. Because it's not kept in us, it's kept in Christ. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now we need to stop here for a second. And if you're using a different translation than the King James, or maybe uh, another translation that omits the phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We'll talk a little bit about this in a moment. Some translational things as we talk about our first question. But you need to understand, the end of verse 1 of chapter 8 is not a requirement, it is a description. So what it's saying there is not, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, are no longer condemned in Jesus Christ. As though it's somehow a, a prerequisite or a requirement. What it's really saying is, because we in Christ have no condemnation, now we walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. We have that available to us. And actually, the Apostle Paul, as he goes through this passage, is going to use that same phrase again, again, to talk about the Christian life. So it's just important you note that it's not a requirement that, well, one day if I walk in the flesh, I'm under condemnation. And one day if I walk in the Spirit, I'm not under condemnation. No, it's saying we have no condemnation in Jesus, and so now we can walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Galatians speaks to this as well. So verse 2. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. You see it again, that's the description of the Christian life. Goes on to say this in verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you see now how it's, there's two groups here being spoken about. Those that are in the flesh and those that are in the spirit. It's not saying we don't battle with sin, because we do, but our position is in Christ, in the spirit. Verse 9. And Paul says this, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of his life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. So Paul's saying all of this to say this, the same spirit that was at work in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God is working in you. And when you received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were quickened, Ephesians 2, and you were made alive. Not alive physically, although we experience a different form of physical life, but we are alive spiritually. We now are living for him. We're living in the fullness of what we were created to live for. Also note that the Holy Spirit is given to believers at the moment of salvation. There is no biblical requirement to receive the Spirit later or in a greater filling. The Bible says to be filled with the Spirit, which is a continual surrender to the Spirit. But Paul just said, if you have Christ, you have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. We, we don't get saved and then get the Spirit somewhere down the road. We desperately need the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to live for Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that works in us to allow us to serve and, and use our gifts and talents for the kingdom. And so we need the Spirit at the moment of salvation. It's also the Holy Spirit that seals us into the day of redemption, Ephesians 1, that we do not lose our salvation because the Spirit is given to us at the moment of salvation and keeps us until the day of redemption. It goes on to say in verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. But you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We just sang about that. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And as I was praying through this week, what, what would be a good summary passage for us to dive into and see those benefits? I, I love the way Paul groups all this together. Because I love that he ends with the reality to the believers. Hey, listen, if you walk in Christ and live in Christ as a follower of Christ, you may suffer for Christ. But don't fear that suffering because one day we'll be glorified with Christ. Not made divine, not exalted above, but we will be glorified in the sense that all of it will be fulfilled. All of it will be satisfied in Christ. That the fullness of our salvation will be known and we will see him and we will be like him, First John says. And so here in this simple 17 verses we see here also an encouragement to Paul. As he says in Romans 6, you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit. So stop living as though you're in the flesh. Stop pursuing the things of the flesh. You're not a debtor to the flesh or to the works of the law. You're a debtor to Christ. You're a debtor to what God has done in your life. And so again, there's so much in here that practically living for Christ, we can see some encouragements, some challenges, but also some, some great victories that we have the ability through Christ to live in a way that honors him. And so again, just as a reminder, as we read through this passage as one example, practically living for Christ does not mean doing it perfect all the time. 
Practically living for Christ does not mean I'm always going to get it right every single time. Practically living for Christ means I know him as my Savior, and when I stumble and fall, I repent of that and I call out to him because I have that ability through the Holy Spirit to call out and to find forgiveness and to find redemption and to be restored in him. And so there's so much in this passage that I want to share with you guys, and I pray that it's encouragement to you. I pray it's a blessing to you to see your standing in Christ. And remember, this is right after Paul openly admits that he battles, openly admits that he struggles going back and forth. And yet he says boldly in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so again, that is our position in Christ, not for what we do for him or performance driven, but solely because of his grace and mercy to those that would call upon his name. And so understanding that kind of practically living for Christ, I want to dive into these two areas. And so we're going to kind of transition a little bit here in the message. And I I pray, honestly, I pray this is an encouragement to you and a help. If it's confusing at all, if you have any questions following the service, please let me know. But there's two areas, speaking practically of the Christian life, that I feel I get a lot of questions on. And it comes in different forms, but it's really the two areas. The first one is, what Bible is the right Bible? Uh, if you've had these conversations with your friends or family, if you've wondered this, so many times in ministry, new Christians, even seasoned Christians who have been around the church for a while, I've heard that question so many times. And I love it because it shows me people want to be in God's word. And they're really kind of trying to think through. But if you've ever been frustrated walking into a Christian bookstore and you see literally a wall of Bibles, and you're just like, uh... What's the right Bible? Is that one better than this one? Because my uncle said that one's a bad Bible, and my grandma says this one's the only Bible. So which one's the right Bible? We've all felt this. And if you have a phone or an iPad that has a Bible app on it, you can literally just scroll and scroll and scroll through all the English translations that are out there. Now, what's interesting to note, and we have to side note this, talking to the seas, talking to other missionaries that work with unreached people groups, The fact that we have so many English translations is a really weird thing to the rest of the world in Christianity. Most people groups have one translation in their language. And most don't even have, or some don't even have a full translation. It's only the New Testament. It's part of the Bible yet. Now, praise God, God is working through the mission fields and people groups are coming to Christ and Bibles are being translated and it's an amazing thing to see. But for us today, living in America with accessibility to so many translations, I've had people ask me over the years, okay, what's the right Bible? What's the best Bible? What Bible should I be reading from? And then they'll say this, well, what Bible do you use? And, and why do you use that one? And I love these conversations. And so speaking kind of practically, I wanted to give you a basic idea around why there's so many English translations. Now, we could spend week upon week going through this topic. Don't get me, don't get me going down there because I love it, okay? But there's a lot of parts to this. So what I would like to do is I'm going to take a lot of information and kind of simplify it down and make it as simple as possible and use the basic ideas behind some of the other things. And if you want to study this on your own, I always encourage that. Um, Be careful because there are always going to be slight biases towards certain things as you're reading certain people. People have their own preferences and opinions on which one's best or better or the only one. And so we want to be careful there, but I want to give you some basic ideas. All right. So Honestly, the rest of the message is going to be pretty practical, okay? So I pray that this has helped to you. Not that I pray it hasn't been practical up to this point. So anyway, hopefully you know what I mean there. So you're like, oh, so apparently none of the rest of the last 25 minutes was practical. Cool. So what Bible is the right Bible? So a question we have to ask is, why are there so many Bibles? But really we're asking, why are there so many English Bibles? Is really what we're asking. So the first thing we have to note is, there is only one Bible. Amen? There is only one Bible, but many English translations of that Bible. And that has caused some confusion and even controversy over which is right. Some of you grew up in churches where this was actually an issue of division in the church, where people fought over this. We must understand that God's word, number one, is settled in heaven. 
So God's word, his complete word, is completely settled and accurate in heaven. That is definitively true from scripture. God knows his word and his word will not change. It is settled in heaven. Also, God's word is inspired. That means God breathed. You can jot it down for note's sake. We've read it many times, 2 Timothy 3.15, that God's word is inspired. That's the kind of a, a compound word that Paul puts together. It just literally means God breathed. God breathed his word out, and the apostles, the authors of God's word, they received that by the work of the Holy Spirit, and they wrote the words that God gave them to write. So we believe that God's word is settled in heaven, and God's word is inspired. The original manuscripts of the Bible, the original copies of the Bible were written in three main languages. And many of you have learned this or you've studied this out. But again, I want to give you the basics of this. Those three languages are Hebrew, Aramaic, which is kind of like a modern Hebrew, and Greek. So those are the three main languages over the course of about 1,500 years that the Bible was composed and written. And you're looking at Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Now, something interesting with the Greek, even, it was a modern-day Greek. It was the common language Greek uh, of the time of Paul and many of the apostles as they were writing. And so, again, that's kind of the original language. So, so the minute we acknowledge that, that the original copies of God's Word, the original pages of the Book of Romans, for example, was not written in English. Okay, we have to be okay with that. If they were not written in English, then we have to translate from Greek to English. And if you, any of you have studied language or you took language in school, you understand that when you translate from one language to another language, sometimes you have to, where this language uses one word, we might need four words. Okay? So you understand that. So there's translational work being involved. However, God's word is settled and God's word is inspired. Even in the midst of translations. So these copied and translated manuscripts were translated into Latin. They were translated into English, as well as various other languages over the centuries and still happening today. Now, most translations are completed by and compiled by a team of scholars and writers and those that have studied the languages and have studied the historical accounts and, and really dove into, I mean, this, this is a team of people. It's not primarily one or two guys sitting around a kitchen table going, hey, what do you think this means? Well, I think it means this. I like that. Let's write that down. Okay, this is a long process. There's a lot of work that goes into these translations, okay? And I'm speaking to majority translations. I'm not talking about one or the other. I'm just saying, in general, these are true principles. So that right there gives credibility to the translation, if there's a team of people, scholars and, and language experts and all of this working through these translations over the course of, this has been going on, well, the King James was originally translated in 1611, and there was a team of scholars that were involved. There were those that were commissioned to translate this work. But what's also interesting is often throughout church history, whenever a group of people or individuals decided we want to take the Word of God and translate it into an easier to understand or a more modern English or how about from Latin to English to begin with, there were even those in the church that fought against that because they deemed their translation or their Latin copy as sacred. And if you translate it from Latin to English, you're losing the sacredness of the scripture. And so people, men like William Tyndall, gave his life, died, martyred by the church at the time, now I'm speaking church, big church, not individual Christians, because he dared to translate into English the word of God so that average people could read the word of God. Now you could study history of the church. There's a lot more that was going on, other corruption in the church that was leading to this issue. But the basic idea is all through church history, there's always been mindsets of, but this is the language it's always been. And if you translate out of this language, you're going to lose something. And so again, we say that, and today there are those that believe, and I'll get to this in just a moment, a little bit more, that the King James Version is the only version inspired for the English people. And that's a dangerous statement to make. Because what you're doing is you're elevating a translation over another translation and saying this one is more sacred than that one. 
And it's a dangerous area to be in because you're putting yourself on the same page as those that literally martyred Christians because they wanted people to understand the word of God. So this has been going on, this controversy, this debate that maybe you've experienced in a church growing up or you've experienced with family or friends. This is not new. That's, that's the reason I'm saying all of this. This is not new stuff, okay? And by the way, Christians, if we're good at anything, it's arguing and fighting with each other about things we shouldn't argue and fight about. I've always said, if it wasn't for music and Bible translations, Christians wouldn't know what to argue about. Because it's just, we just pick on these things. Now, I will get to a point of saying that I do believe there are better, and I'm going to use that word better in a sense of maybe how they were translated, what went into the translation. But again, all God's word, all settled in heaven and inspired. So understanding there's different English translations, so many different ones out there. How do I choose the right Bible? Meaning translation. How do I choose a translation that's the right one? So when we speak of translations of the Bible, there are really two main ways that people translate scripture. Two basic ways. There's what's called word for word and thought for thought. Now I'm I'm using very simplified terms, but that's the basic idea. Word for word, thought for thought. Two basic ideas of how we translate. Now word for word is pretty self-explanatory. If the word is in Latin or Greek or Hebrew, if that's the word, we translate that word into English. Word for word, okay? Thought for thought can tend to be more in the idea of I read a sentence and I take the idea of the sentence and I translate that idea, that concept into this language. One example that this might come out practically would be if you're a missionary and you're serving in a people group that have never seen snow. And the Bible says white as snow. I have to translate snow into a word that's in their language, but they don't even have a word for snow. So there's two ways to do this, and this is what translators will do. They either translate snow in the original language into their people, and they'll, a lot of times if it's an unreached people group, they'll create a word based on their phonetics and teach them that word. But sometimes they'll just translate it into snow, and then they'll teach them what snow is. Okay. So we can teach you a word you don't know, what it looks like, what it is, and then describe what it means. But you're still word for word. Another way you do this is go, well, they've never seen snow before, but this in their culture is considered clean or pure or whatever. So I'm going to translate, instead of white as snow, we're going to say white as that material or that thing, and then teach them the idea. You guys with me so far? Pretty, pretty simple, but that's how it works. In modern English translations, we have very heavy word-for-word translations, and we have more heavy thought-for-thought translations. Some combine both. They'll do word-for-word primarily, but with some thought-for-thought. And again, if you were to look this up or study this out, it's kind of like a spectrum. There's the most extreme word-for-word and the most extreme thought-for-thoughts, and kind of a lot of things in between. Now, with that, there's also what's called a paraphrase Bible which is literally just that. It is not a translation. It is a paraphrase. The message paraphrase is not a translation of the Bible. It is merely a opinion on what the Bible's teaching. So that's why it reads more like a commentary. Nothing wrong with it as a resource, but it is not a translation of God's word. It is a commentary on God's word. Now, there is a recent paraphrase that I want to give you a caution on. A recent paraphrase uh, version that was introduced in 2017. Now, this was actually called, it's still very, it's becoming more and more popular today. It's called the Passion Bible. Uh, It's not really a full paraphrase of all of Scripture. Um, I believe it only has Psalm, Proverbs, the New, I think the New Testament might be complete. um, And then that's really pretty much all it is. But it's being kind of sold as a translation of the Bible, a version, just like any other version. The problem is that this was not compiled by a team of scholars or experts. This was compiled by one man who claims to have received extra biblical, meaning he didn't read it in scripture. God directly spoke to him extra biblical revelation from God. And then he took the Bible and wrote what he believes God would have him add to it to really bring it to life. Okay. This is what it's being sold as, quote, it's a new and refreshing take on scripture. It is, quote, the Bible for a new generation. However, again, 
just because it says Passion Bible, don't think, oh, it's a translation. Oh, and if you study the author, you study the background, you're, all this is readily available. It's not secret. He actually believes that God put a spot in his frontal lobe that allows him, when he goes into these meditative states, to connect with God and receive direct revelation. That's his terminology, not mine. Now, when you read it, it's just very confusing. I've read excerpts from it. It's very confusing. It's just extra wordy. But this is also concerning to me because it's being presented as a copy of God's word, a translation of God's word, and it's not. It's one man's opinion of God's word under the guise of spirituality. By the way, just because somebody says God speaks to them doesn't mean God speaks to them. Okay? And this is why we have to be so careful about using phrases like that. Well, God revealed this to me. If he showed it to you through his word, he illuminated your mind to it. He did not give you brand new revelation. So we have to be careful when we hear these terms, we need to think deeper than the surface. So again, word for word, thought for thought, paraphrase. Those are kind of the three main groups. I believe, and our church believes, that word for word translations obviously give us the most accurate translations. If you're looking for a Bible and a translation or a version of the Bible, you need to try to discover ones that are considered word for word. Okay, they're, they're word for word translations. Some examples of word for word would be, obviously, the King James Bible, the New King James, New American Standard, or the NASB, Christian Standard, or the English Standard Bibles. These are all considered word-for-word translations, to name a few. There's more. Some translations that use thought-for-thought as well as word-for-word, and again, there's a scale. Um, So one example that's a word-for-word that uses thought-for-thought would be the New International Version. Again, still the Word of God, not knocking those. I'm just saying as an example. And the New Living Translation would be more towards thought-for-thought and less word-for-word, but still incorporating that in their translation. Now, that being said, everyone has different opinions, preferences on what helps them in their personal Bible study time. Some like a certain translation over another for various reasons. We as a church obviously use the King James translation as our standard text. However, we understand that there are accurate English translations that are equally the word of God. So yes, we, as a standard, we use the King James Version. That does not mean that other English translations are not the Word of God. They are equally the Word of God. They are equally accurate. Okay? Um, I personally, in my own personal Bible study, I use the King James Version and the New American Standard. Those are the two primary Bibles that I use for my personal study. Okay? I like the New American Standard because it has more modern language for some texts. And I like the King James, honestly, because this is what, when I was saved... This is the first Bible that I was given, and there's just nostalgia. There's sentimentality there. I just I enjoy it as a translation. This is not to, again, say that other English translations are not accurate, but what I would do is encourage you, if you're looking at a translation of the English Bible and you're trying to decide which one's best, do a little homework into how it was translated, why it was translated, what went into the translation process, and that might help you a little bit more to make that choice, okay? But again, saying all of that to say this, there's only one Bible, No English translation is greater in the sense of King James is the word of God and this, you know, um, NASB is not. That's not what we're saying. There's just differences in translation and differences in preferences, all right? So while I do believe that word for word gives us the most accurate translations, the key I would stress is to stay focused on spending time in God's word than worrying about so much the translation, Does that make sense? I'd rather you be in God's word and not worry and fuss over the specific translations. But if you're looking to study that out, that's what I would encourage. All right? All right. That one, moving to the second question. Okay? And I know, again, there's there's so much more we can talk about, but I'm trying to give you just a snapshot. Another thing that I've heard people say, and this is not to be funny, although this is how it reads because it is what people have asked me over the years, and I'm not looking at anybody in our church. I don't know if this is the mindset of anyone currently. Um... Do I have to give money to the church? And if so, how much? Which is a very important question for some. Do I have to give money to the church? And if so, how much? I want to go to a passage in 2 Corinthians to help us with this. So you're in Romans. Go to 1 Corinthians. And then the next one will be 2 Corinthians. There you go. Good job. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And verse 7. So Paul talking here, there's a lot 
in chapter 8. Well, really the whole book of 2 Corinthians is one continuous, amazing account of ministry in Christ and what that looks like. You can go to chapter 8 and see all that he speaks of there, which we'll dive into one verse and 8 in just a moment. But chapter 9 and verse 7. So 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. So remember, our question is, basically, the rough question is, do I have to give money to the church? And if so, how much? Every man, verse 7, according as he has purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, again, there's more in this text that would really unpack that even more, but I want to just use that verse as a springboard because the basic question is really wrong. The question should not be, do I have to give money to the church? And if I do have to give, all right, give me a number that I know how much I have to give. That's not the right question. The reality is we must start with the right hearts that will lead to understanding how to have a giving heart. And so Paul says here, here's the key. It's about what you've purposed in your heart between you and the Lord. That's what he says. In Christ, we first realize that all we have is his. Everything we have is his. So again, the idea that I can somehow take what's mine and give God what's his, we're already at a wrong starting point. It's all his. He just leases it to you and then will hold you accountable for how you use it. He's leasing you all that you have as a gift for your enjoyment, for your blessing, but also for his praise. By the way, the breath in your lungs that you're breathing in right now, the breath that you are continuing to breathe in, that's leased to you. That's his breath. He's letting you borrow it and use it for now. But one day we will leave this world and give an account to our father for all that he's given us and how we used it for his glory. So the first thing we have to start understanding is all of it is his anyway. In Christ, it's all his. We have nothing apart from his gracious gifts that he has given to us, which include any and all material possessions. So while this is how we should view our lives, unfortunately, our Western culture has created a secular, sacred mindset. We give certain things to God, and I get to keep everything else to myself. I gave God my 10%, so the 90s mine. And there's a wrong way to think in the heart. It's already a wrong heart attitude. The truth is, you can be a Christian and not give your time, not give your talents, and not give your tithe to the local church. You can do that. You can hold all that back and still be a follower of Christ in the sense that you're saved. But I don't believe we can do that and be joyful. I don't believe that I can hold all that back and have joy and peace in my heart. See, again, you can do that, but again, that's not going to bring joy. Our salvation is based in the finished work of the cross, not our continued performance of obedience. It's not, I keep doing this, so God keeps saving me. No, no, no. He saves me because he is faithful and he is good. But as a response to that in Christ, in reality, I should be desiring to give back to him. You see, if we are being honest, while my salvation does not depend on my giving, my heart in Christ knows that I should be surrendered and ready to give when the opportunity arises. I love what Paul says going to 2 Corinthians 8. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 4. Now he's talking about the Macedonian church. He's talking about his visit with them and the encouragement they were to him. All of these collections are being done for those in need. And I love what we read here in verse 4. He says, praying us with much entreaty, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Now that's, again, in the King James, that phrase, praying with us, or praying us with much entreaty, another translation might translate that as begging us. So here's what the church in Macedonia was doing. They heard about this need, and Paul comes, and they begged Paul, please let us give to this need. Please let us give to what's going on. We want to give unto the ministry and help as we can. So would you please take this money, take these possessions. See, Paul didn't go in and say, okay, church, you got to give. Let's pass the plates. Let's go. You got to do it. If you don't want to do it, I don't really care because you're giving. 
You better put the money. That's not what Paul had to do. Paul shows up and the church in Christ was so desiring to be a blessing. They literally said to Paul, listen, how much can we give? Can we give more? Would you take more if we gave you more? Chapter 8 goes on to say that they gave out of their lack. That they were not giving out of an abundance. They were giving and it was creating a need in their community of believers where they were saying, okay, I'm going to give you this. and I'm going to trust the Lord that he'll provide this for me. And the Bible says in chapter 8 that Paul says, and he quotes, he says, they found that when they gave, they were satisfied, they were fulfilled. And when they had and kept back, they were lacking. When they chose not to give, it created a desire of need. When they gave, their needs were met. So again, Paul did not have to guilt the church into supporting the needs of the ministry of the gospel. The people begged to be a part of the ministry which Paul connects their giving and the overall ministry of Christ in 2 Corinthians 9. So again, the first thing we have to note is we need the right hearts. And what is that right heart? The right heart is simply this. We start with the realization that it's all his anyway. And once we realize that it's all his anyway, then we will give with open hands. When we start with the right heart, we'll give with open hands. When we have the wrong heart, we'll give begrudgingly. And by force. In the New Testament, the emphasis is not on a percentage, but on merely giving what the Lord has led for you and me to give. Yes, the word tithe in the Old Testament means a tenth. However, the heart of the tithe throughout all of the Old Testament speaks to more of a free will offering, not a demanded amount to be paid. And we see this even back in Exodus. That there was a temple tax that was to be given, but beyond that, there was a free will offering that was to be given just of the heart. And I love that God has always been a God that says, would you just give me what you've purposed in your hearts? Now, I know the tenth and and starting with the tenth is a good amount of money. It's a good round figure. But in the Old Testament, they actually probably gave upwards to 30, 40 percent, not just tenth, because you got to include other offerings that they took. So there's nothing wrong with giving a tenth. Nothing wrong with starting there. Nothing wrong with being there. I'm not saying that. The point is, we can't look at it as 10's his, 90's mine. It has to be, no, 100% his, and whatever he wants me to do with it, I'll do with it. And if that means giving more, I'll give more. If that means giving in different ways, I'll give in different ways. Whatever it is. We give back to the Lord for the work of the ministry through the local church. Whatever that amount is, that's between you and the Lord. We give to support missions work happening both locally in America as well as globally. So do we give? How much do we give? What do we give? The answer is there between you and the Lord. What would he have you to give? And how would he have you to to support the local church? And this may change week to week or month to month or season to season. The point is having that right heart so that we'll have open hands. This morning, I want to kind of speak to these two areas, these two kind of general areas of questions that I've received over the years. There's many more, but these are just two that I pray would be an encouragement to you as you are maybe beginning your journey with Christ, or maybe you've been a follower of Christ for many years, and these are questions you've had. If you want to dive into either of these more in depth, please reach out to me. I would love to have a conversation with you about that. Uh, But again, this is more to help us in regards to our practical Christian living. So again, I want to encourage you with what? To spend time in the word, to spend time in the word and to surrender your heart to his leadership. Those are the two challenges. Spend time in his word this week and surrender your heart to his leadership. When we give him control over the areas we want to hold on to the most, we will see him bless us with a peace and a contentment beyond compare, even with our unanswered or even unasked questions. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we spend some time in invitation? As you begin to bow there for invitation and seek the Lord. And as the band comes, we're going to go ahead and just spend some time responding to what God is doing. And as we desire to respond to his initiative in our lives, I pray that we would realize that in Christ, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are free from sin and the weight of performance that we have been rescued and made new in Christ. That all of that, that knowledge of that truth of salvation comes to us from the word of God. And I know that it's confusing with the many different translations that are out there, but I want to encourage you as you begin to pray there where you are, that you would begin to just commit to say, Lord, I'm just going to spend time with you today. I'm going to spend time with you 
tomorrow. I'm just going to spend time in your word and in prayer. I'm going to surrender to your leadership. That as I surrender my heart to you, that you would give me guidance and direction on what to do with my life, the decisions I make, the actions I take, how I use my resources, how I use my time, how I use my talents. Maybe I would surrender to a ministry or maybe there's somebody here that would say, I, I'll surrender to give or I'll surrender to serve or I'm going to surrender to take the leading of what you, God wants me to do in the life of my neighbor or my coworker or my family member. See, surrendering to his leadership is really just aligning ourselves with who we are already in Christ. And the wonder of salvation is that now we can obey. We couldn't obey before because we were outside of Christ. We didn't have the ability to obey. But by faith and through grace and coming to know Christ, he's given us the ability to obey and to follow by the work of the Spirit. And so I, I pray that we would respond this morning in whatever he's doing. Lord, I, I, I know this morning was a little different in content, but Lord, I pray that it was a blessing and encouragement to your church. And I pray that you've been glorified. I pray that you will take what was given today, Lord, and use it to strengthen the body of Christ. Help us to surrender to your leadership, Lord. Help us to surrender to your initiative in our lives, to not give begrudgingly anything that we give to you, but to give as an act of worship and an act of joy, cheerfully giving to you because we know it's for your glory and that others would come to know Christ. And so, Father, in all these things, we give you all the praise. And, Lord, if there's anyone here that has never received Christ as the Lord and Savior, I pray they would know that you love them, that you sent your son to die for them, that it's not about being a good person or going to church or doing good things. It's about simply admitting that we've sinned. We've broken your law. We're not perfect. We repent of that sin, meaning we we call it what it is and we turn away from it. And we turn to you and we ask that you would save us. We believe that you died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again. And when we call on your name, you give us that new life and you give us eternal life with you in heaven when we leave this world. And so, Father, thank you for all that you're doing. I pray that you would be glorified as you continue to work in our hearts and minds to draw us closer to you. And, Father, we'll give you all the praise and all the honor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we sing a song of invitation? Whether there in your seats or here at the altar, whatever God is doing, would you respond? Do you need to surrender to his leadership this morning? And say, Lord, I I just want to have an open heart and open hands for whatever you want to do. Would you come and surrender that to him and follow his leading as we sing the song of worship this morning?